1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 through 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become foolish that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So then, let no one boast in men. For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required as stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. This is the word of God. I figured that since Jerry wasn't here today, it would be a good idea to uh, preach on this topic. We're going to talk about how to judge Jerry today. Um, honestly, that is the, uh, the gist of our passage this morning, is um, how we ought to regard our spiritual leaders in the church, how we ought to relate to them. And uh, appreciate Joe for reading that. Thanks to the praise band and everything. Um, at this point in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, uh, Paul has been dealing with the same issue for the first four chapters, first three chapters going on into the chapter four. And the issue was this, Paul uh, had planted the church in Corinth, just kind of recap where we are so far, and uh, he spent about a year and a half there. And then he moved to Ephesus and left the church at Corinth in the care of elders that he had established there. And while he was in Ephesus, planning a church there, he uh, had a few people come visit him from Corinth. And there was a group of people who came with several letters of questions from the Corinthians. These were questions on doctrinal matters, questions on behavior and practice. That is what chapters 5 through the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians is about, is those letters that came during that period of time. But the first four chapters deal with a separate issue. In chapter 1, he says that there was a group of people who came to him that he identifies as Chloe's people. And Chloe's people came to him with concerns over disunity in the church. And the disunity was of this nature. There were people in the church who were lining up with particular apostles and particular teachers. And so some would boast that they were of the Paul group. Some would boast that they were of the Apollos group. Some would boast that they were of the Cephas or the Peter group. And then others who apparently this other group, they just, they just didn't really have a guy to go after. So they were like, 
well, we're just with Jesus. And so that's kind of their attitude. And it's not like it's a noble, I'm going to follow Christ and, and I'm not worried about it. It was like, yeah, yeah, you got your guys, I'm going to follow Jesus. That's who I'm after, you know. So there was this pride around who you're identifying with that was kind of creeping up in the church at Corinth. And it was causing dissension. People would look down on the other groups because of, of who they were affiliated with. And so uh, Paul has been dealing with that through chapter 1, 2, and then here in, at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, he's going to sum up everything that he has said so far about that. And in a real sense, he kind of gets the bullseye out and targets in on the true depth of what he's been talking about. Let's, and so at this point, he really reaches the climax of everything that he's going to say. And the main issues that he's going to identify here is, is really... How should you regard those who have spiritual authority over you? How should you relate with them? And uh, there's going to be two issues that he kind of identifies in this. It's going to be, on the one hand, there are those in the Corinthian church who regarded their spiritual authorities too highly. They put too much confidence in these guys. And then on the other hand, there were those who were overly critical of the other apostles. And so what is the healthy balance? How do we then judge Jerry? How are you supposed to do this? And uh, it's not just an issue in the Corinthian church. It's an issue that we face today. Now, you may feel a little disconnected from this because your tendency may not be to identify with a spiritual leader. It might be that. But typically in today's church, that's not so much the case. I think an analogy of our own uh, culture really carries weight in helping us understand exactly what's going on here. And it is to think of this in terms of how this is manifested in our political culture, all right? So I think of uh, two things in particular that really sort of highlights this. A few years, several years back, when George Bush was in office, it became, and you'll remember this, and by the way, when I speak about George Bush and when I speak about Barack Obama in this little, I, I'm making no claims on my opinions of their politics whatsoever, uh, just uh, I'm just saying about what happened around these guys at this time. So George Bush, a few years back, you'll remember, it became pretty popular to dislike George Bush. You remember this? And so you'd have a lot of things in the media. You'd have uh, Saturday Night Live had a field day with George Bush. and I loved watching Will Ferrell do a lot of his George Bush impersonations. Um, uh, there was, uh, I remember David Letterman had a segment that came on the David Letterman show called Hail to the Chief. And it was just devoted to making fun of botched up George Bush speeches. That was the only thing it was for. He would show, a, and so he would just show a clip of George Bush and he'd make no commentary about it. He would just let it happen. And then there were rock and roll albums that came out that were critical of George Bush. One I remember that came out uh, was called The War on Errorism. There's a little play on the war on terrorism. It just became popular to dislike him. You didn't really have to have a reason to dislike him. You just had to go with the cultural trend of the time. And so here's what was kind of amassing around this whole thing was that there was a group of people who were identifying with something. They were identifying with disliking George Bush. It became a power play for them. It became a source of identity. It became a source of security for them that there was this group of people that they could identify with. And because they were associating with this group of people, it gave them a, uh, a, uh, an elevation 
off of which they could be critical of another group of people. And that made them feel better about themselves. Now, as the Bush administration waned on and the Barack Obama administration came on, the same thing began to happen, just a little different. It became, I've never seen such a quick embrace of a person in my life as I saw it happen with Barack Obama. And so there was like this, uh, with a certain group of people, there was this almost messianic look at him that there was hope and you'd have pictures of Barack Obama with hope all over them and you'd have these, these, these things going across the nation of, of change and people just identified with him so much so that I think I can really, I think you'll agree with me when I say that there were those people at that time if you were a person who disagreed with Barack Obama, you were viewed as regressive or you were viewed at worst as even racist for disliking Barack Obama. And then in other circles, if you liked Barack Obama, you were viewed as un-American or unpatriotic because Barack Obama was not born in the United States, as some would say. My point is not to make any claim on whether Barack Obama is uh, a good president or whether George Bush is a good president. My point is to identify the same sociological phenomenon that took place around politics at that, in our time is the same phenomenon that was taking place in Corinth in Paul's time. Now, it's not just politics. We do this in dozens of areas of our life. And it identifies one key thing that's going on in all of us. And it's the key thing that Paul wants to put his finger on here in Corinthians. And what is that? Let me just read for us. Let no one deceive himself. He identifies this as self-deception. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness, and again the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So, verse 21, pay attention to this, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. What is this wisdom that Paul is identifying that is folly to God? He defines it in verse 21. The wisdom that Paul is identifying is not ideas. Paul is not opposed to ideas. He's for them. He develops them. He is one of the most thinking writers in the New Testament. What is the type of wisdom he's talking about? It's boasting in men. It is finding your identity not in the gospel and not in Christ, but instead in identifying with this person. And this person's success and this person's strengths and this person's ideas become your own. As if somehow by this person being successful, you yourself are successful. And if you are identified with this person, then you can look down on other people who are not identified with this person. We do it in politics, and I think the tendency in this church, since he's not here, I can speak very and he would say the same thing, is that there's a tendency that we can do this with our own pastor. You may do it with the other staff members. I doubt it. But, uh, but we have a tendency to put a lot of confidence in him. How do you judge Jerry? You judge Jerry first by not boasting in Jerry. 
not boasting in Andrew, not boasting in Josh, not boasting in Adrian, Dave, your, whoever else it might be, John MacArthur, John Piper, who in the world, it's not boasting in them. It is not, I, not getting your sense of security out of another person. It is the pride, what I call in this passage, the pride of insecurity. That sounds like an oxymoron. Pride and insecurity, are they not two opposite things? No, they aren't. They aren't at all. Insecurity is this. Listen to this. Insecurity, and we all feel it at times, insecurity is pride in its weak form. The proud person who does not have self-confidence, who feels weak, shows their pride how? By being insecure. By backing away, by caving in on themselves. But if they were an effective and a strong and a powerful person, we would see the true nature of that pride manifesting itself. And so the insecure person, instead of putting their pride in their own wisdom, puts their pride in someone else, and that becomes their sense of security. Paul calls this earthly wisdom, and he says God is, in fact, opposed to it. And so when we find it in ourselves that we are putting our confidence in another person instead of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we find it in ourselves, Paul issues a warning here because this is what the Corinthians were doing. Their confidence was in, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. And Paul says, no. If you're getting your identity from a human being, that is folly to God, and God will, as he says it in this passage, quoting from Job, he uses hunting language here. He catches the wise in their craftiness, as if God is stalking them, like a hunter stalks its prey. 1 Peter 5, 5 says this, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride is such a subtle sin in our lives, and it will manifest itself in a hundred different ways. And there is one thing, one thing only, that can undermine the root of pride in any of our lives. And that's what he goes to next. Verse 21, so let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And here it is, what undermines pride? And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. The only thing that will undermine pride in your life is authentic humility. And the only way to achieve authentic humility is to realize it does not matter if you follow Paul. It does not matter if you follow Jerry. It doesn't matter if you follow Andrew. It doesn't matter if you follow whoever. It matters if you find your supreme strength, your supreme security, your supreme, uh, your supreme identity in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That is it. And if you would realize, Paul wants the Corinthians and he wants Grace Community Church to realize what you have in Christ Jesus, you would not line up with parties and affiliations to get your sense of security. You would realize that if I belong to Christ and the world has been subjected to Christ, 
then all things belong to me. Now that is a mysterious saying. All things belong to me. What does Paul mean here? All things belong to me. He means all things. And so in case we were to misunderstand him, he goes ahead and defines this. All things. The world belongs to you. Life belongs to you. Death belongs to you. The present belongs to you. The future belongs to you. When I was a kid, I was about five or six years old, and I had a birthday party at uh, Dairy Queen on the Five Lane. You remember the Dairy Queen on the Five Lane? Everybody? I think it's where Moon Doggies is now, isn't that right? Yeah. Um, and uh, while we were in the Dairy Queen at this birthday party, we had Pin the Tail on the Donkey. And I was the birthday boy. And so everybody's playing Pin the Tail on the Donkey, and you can get, if you win Pin the Tail on the Donkey, you get some sort of a goodie bag. Well, they put the blindfold on my eyes. And um, I have such a clear memory of this for some reason. And I realized that I could see daylight out the bottom of my thing. So this was a foolproof plan to walk around like this. And, and then, you know, put the tail on the donkey. And I got the tail right on where the tail's supposed to go on the donkey. And I'd pull my bandana off, and sure enough, I thought, well, I've nailed this. I'm going to get the goodie bag. And I didn't because I guess they figured I'd cheated. <laughs> my buddy got it. Remember who my buddy was, John Justice. He just got married yesterday. And he just thought that he was the stuff because he got this goodie bag. And, uh, and I was jealous of him for this little goodie bag. And it's essentially the same thing going on here. As a five or a six-year-old, I didn't realize in that moment that he had little dum-dums and little sweet tarts and a little kazoo or whatever else was in that thing. And I had this table full of presents. You know, I had all things. It's the same thing the Corinthians were doing. They were taking the goodie bag and they were like, my goodie bag's better than your goodie bag whenever all of them had the same riches in the Lord Jesus Christ. All things. Life. What does Christ offer us? Abundant life in this age and eternal life in the age to come. Death. What is death to the Christian? Nothing. A passageway to the eternal life he has in store for us. The world. It is all yours. You just don't own it yet. The Biltmore House. You go up to the Biltmore House, you walk around that place, you own it. It's yours. You just don't have the deed yet. <laughs> All things are yours. That will be very clear when Christ returns. And it will become true that blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the what? The earth. All things are yours, Christian. What in the world would you want to boast about your teacher or boast about your own wisdom whenever the real riches is found in the crucified Lord Jesus Christ? And so because he is that for you, he gives these things to his church as gifts. Apollos, Paul, Cephas, Jerry, Andrew, John MacArthur, Les Feldick, whoever in the world you want to put in this list, they are there for your benefit. 
You are not there for them. They are there for you. I am here for you. Lynn Bergen is there for your class so that you might grow up into Christ. Not so that you might find your identity in us, but so that you might learn from us how to follow Christ, how to become more like him. That's the whole point of it. So how do you judge Jerry? Don't identify in him. Identify in the one he's pointing you to, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so moving on from this, he says this, Christ is God's. And this is a difficult statement because it would seem to say something of a, maybe a Jesus that is not as much God as the Father is. And some people have really wrestled with whether or not that's what it's talking about. And it's not. Not at all. The real issue here is that Christ is subordinate to God. He is subjected to God in his earthly ministry. When Christ came to redeem mankind, he did so in a subordinate way to God. He obeyed God. He was sent by God. He obeyed God in this life. He obeyed God being subjected to the point of death on a cross, and then he presented himself to God the Father afterwards. And that then, not that Jesus is less than God, but that he took this subordinate role to win a people for himself through salvation on the cross, that this then becomes a model for us of how we ought to be as servants of Christ. And so this Christ is of God is how the apostles and the teachers of the church are supposed to be also, as Paul goes on to say. I flipped over too far. Verse 1 of chapter 4. This is how one should regard us. So point number two in this, point one uh, is uh, you, I should have said this earlier, you are not Jerry. Point two is uh, Jerry is not yours, okay? So then how should you regard us, Paul says, as servants of who? Of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Here's the awesome thing about these words here. Both, word, both words, servant and stewards, identify the same thing. Servant, typically in the New Testament, is the translation of the word doulos, typically, which means slave. Here, he does not use that word. He uses the word hysterion, which means, uh, well, it, it's, it's really kind of the same word as the word steward. And I think the best way to kind of image this is uh, Danielle and I used to watch a show called uh, Downton Abbey. And I know that for some of the guys in here, I've lost some cool points right now just because I said I watched Downton Abbey. But I do know that there are some of you men in here who watch that show and like it. And I can name you. If, and so I have a group of people that I can identify with, right? Wait a minute. I'm not supposed to do that. I'm supposed to with Christ. So uh, anyway, on Downton Abbey, there was a man named Mr. Carson. Mr. Carson was the butler of the Crawley Manor. Or the, or the Abbey, Crawley Abbey. And the Crawleys were an aristocratic English family in the early 1900s. And Mr. Carson was, he was their butler. And as the butler of this house, uh, he had really absolute authority to hire, to fire, to, to, uh, to conduct the goings-on of the house. Mr. Crawley was in charge, but Mr. Carson was the implementer of all of these things. So if you were a child in this household, or if you were a guest in this household, Mr. Carson, the butler, would serve you. 
He would serve you your meals. He would bring your food to you, your, your, your clothes to you, whatever it was that you needed. But you know what? You, as a child in this house or as a guest in this house, were not Mr. Carson's boss. Mr. Crawley was Mr. Carson's boss. Mr. Carson served you because it was his job and his delight to do so. But if he, as a guest in this house, if you were a guest in this house, determined that you were an inappropriate guest, he had the authority to dismiss you from the house. He had all of the authority invested in him in a sense that Mr. Crawley had in himself. Mr. Crawley had given that over to him. In a very real sense, this is what Paul says is true of him and is true of ministers in the church. They are butlers to the church. They belong to Christ and he is their boss, but they are servants to you. Interestingly enough, that in, whenever this was that this actually developed, you know, in other denominations, Episcopalians and Anglicans and so forth put the little white thing on their, the, the ministers put the little white thing on their collars. You know what I'm talking about? This is yes, this is no. All right, good. Um, this was actually a symbol of servitude. The whole reason why it was ever brought into the ministry was so that that would be a symbol of their servitude. It's become a symbol of their elevation at this point, but at the original, original, in the origination of it, it was meant to be a symbol that they are there to serve the church. They are humble servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of the gospel. And so that is their role. That is Jerry's role. He is here for you, but he belongs to Christ. And so then how then do we judge Jerry on this basis? Verse 2. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Now, I really struggled with this passage when I came to it because it seemed to me, as Paul goes on, let me continue reading actually. Verse 3, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. It seemed to me when I first read this that Paul was saying that ministers of the gospel are above criticism. And I thought, no, that can't be what he's saying. It seemed to me that he was saying that they were above evaluation. That can't be what he's saying. And then I thought about it. It occurred to me, what does he mean by judge? Well, he goes on to say, verse 5, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. What does he mean by judge? He means final judgment. He means passing judgment. He means condemnation. He does not mean evaluation. The Bible never tells us not to judge in the sense that we do not evaluate. You know a tree by its fruits. How else are you going to know that unless you judge or evaluate? Think of how the Bible tells us to, to think of those who minister over us in terms of evaluation. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 7, remember your leaders those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. You're to look at them and evaluate, are they following Christ? Do I want to follow them? Titus chapter 1 verse 7. Let me flip over there. What is the criteria by which we should evaluate Jerry, myself, whoever else? Titus 1 verse 7. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. 
He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and able to rebuke those who contradict. Or 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. What is the criteria by which we should evaluate those who are our spiritual leaders in the church? Whether their lives line up with the gospel, are they godly individuals seeking to obey the Lord Jesus Christ? And are they teaching the truths of the gospel? Are they sound in their doctrine? Those two things and nothing else. Are they faithful ministers of the gospel? What we cannot do and what we often find ourselves doing is being critical of them as individuals and condemning them in our hearts and holding a sort of bitterness against them. And Paul says, this is out of line. This is not how you treat those in the spiritual authority over you. Instead, it is Christ alone who has the ability to do that. Why? Because you do not know how to judge. We do not know the hidden parts of the heart, do we? And that is what Christ will judge Jerry. That is what Christ will judge Andrew for. And that is what Christ will judge you for on the last day. When you stand before him, all of the hidden parts of your life, all of the motivations will be open and laid bare before him. And he will not judge us as ministers on the basis of whether we speak with eloquence or on the basis of whether we're intelligent or the basis of whether we're successful. He'll judge us on the basis of whether we are faithful. Faithful to him. Faithful in not only our actions, but our motives. Why we're doing it in the first place. Do we do it out of love for Christ and love for others, or do we do it out of self-service? And he will then, God will render the rewards to us based off of that. And our praise in those days will then not come from mankind, but from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who gave his life for our sins. And that is the whole reason for this in the first place. So what is Paul centering in on here? How do you judge Jerry? How should you relate to those in authority over you? Don't boast in them. Do not judge them. That's Christ's role. But instead, center everything on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the beginning. He is the end. He is the all in all. He is the one who died for your sins. He is the one who has forgiven you. And he is the one before whom you will give an account one day at the last, judge, at the last judgment. And it is an awesome thing. This frees us from self-condemning and self-defeating pride that puts your identity in someone who will ultimately fail you and puts it instead in the Lord Jesus Christ who is a solid rock and will never fail you. And that is the call this morning. If in any sense you have, you have drifted to one of these two extremes, a spiritual leader or another person is your all in all, or you're overly critical and condemning of these people, bring it back in. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, for he is opposed to you in this. And come to him and center back on the cross of Christ. And remember that old saying that at the foot of the cross, it's what? Level ground. None of us are above the other. We're all servants on this 
in this, in this work of the gospel that we're all committed to.